Could you open up to Matthew chapter 5? Today is, I'm calling Graduation Sunday from the Beatitudes. So if you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. If you have been hanging with us for the last eight weeks, today is Graduation Sunday. We graduate from the Beatitudes, and it is quite a diploma we're going to get today. Where do you see? It really is a doozy. So if you can... Open up to Matthew 5, we're going to continue on as we always have, is just reading through it, and remember we have said the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, is a process of kingdom living. It starts with verse 3, and then subsequently there's a process of going deeper and deeper, or higher and higher, until you get to the summit of the kingdom life. That's what we're going to talk about today. So before we start, we bow in prayer that God would really use his word to touch our hearts. And by the way, let's also pray for Ken. Ken, I love you, and it's been a tough year for you, and thank you for serving us so faithfully. I appreciate it. Let's pray. Lord, I have two very specific prayers. Number one, I just ask that you would open up your word so that we could understand what you mean. And we could apply it to our lives. And then number two, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. So God, it will become us. We will live this. We will live like your sons and daughters, really. That's my prayer request. Because God, sometimes it's really hard to do in this world. This world overwhelms us. It's noisy and it is persuasive. And we lose focus. So God, I'm just asking, please help us to be different because we are here today. We love you, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, those who recognize their standing before God their smallness in comparison to his holiness. That's how you enter, is by humility. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, those who understand that they are sinners and that this sin is offensive to God. Blessed are those because they'll be comforted. They'll receive the mercy, the comfort, the forgiveness of God. Verse 5, blessed are the meek those who no longer need to be the star of the show, need to have a big name or strive to show how important they are. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They get it all. So from three through five, a person empties themselves of their pride, their sin, and now they can be filled. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who know they need more, and what they hunger and thirst for is righteousness. They will be satisfied. Oh, that tastes great. Then you have verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. So we've been filled with his life, his mercy. We should give mercy. And if we give mercy, we'll receive in more mercy to keep giving. Which goes to verse 8. Blessed are the pure for they shall see God. And in verse 9, 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons, daughters, the family of God. Which leads us to verse 10, and verse 10 means we have graduated. And if verse 10 is true of you, that means you've received the diploma of the kingdom life. It's a great diploma. Here's what it is. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And 11 and 12 elaborate on verse 10. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I like how the NIV puts it, because of me. Because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is the graduation diploma. Nothing better. Persecution. And guess what? The moment Jesus said, it is finished, he died a terrible death on a cross. So if we are going to be like him, why should we shock if we receive what he received? And that's what the whole Passion Week is going to be about. It's going to be about Jesus being led to the slaughter for us. Persecution. So to walk through this, I want to talk about three things, basically define persecution, talk about why persecution should happen, and then the third thing is we... What should be the result of persecution in our hearts? How should we view it? So first we're going to define it. So what is persecution? The Greek word literally means to put pressure on you as an enemy, to be hunted, chased, harassed, hunted down. Like David was for 14 years. King Saul wanted him dead. So for 14 years he chased through the desert David to kill him. That's persecution. Persecution is not, and please listen closely, persecution is not when you are offended because somebody either said a curse word or some bad words your way or insulted you. That's not necessarily all the time persecution. Persecution is not when people disagree with you or criticize you, especially if you're arguing online. Just because somebody disagrees with you means it's usually because you're online. It's like if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen kind of thing. That's going to happen. People will argue with you. That is not persecution. Persecution is not when people think you are mean for being a stingy Christian. You've seen the Christians like this. I am not going to tip that person. Do you see that tattoo they were wearing? How dare they? That's, and then they're mean to you. That's not persecution. That's you being stingy. Persecution is not when people think you're odd for how you dress, because some Christians are weird, let's be honest. Did you know, and this got me in a lot of hot trouble in my first service, did you know every Christian movie is really not that good necessarily? And if the critics on Rotten Tomatoes don't like it, that's not persecution. That just means it usually was a bad movie, actually. And oh, some people don't like that. Why don't they like that? And persecution, again, like I said earlier, is not when people use the F word while you're on work. They're not purposely doing that against you. Probably they're having a bad day. Not against you. That's not persecution. 
It's called living in the world. Persecution is, though, when people want to silence you because you belong to a person or a group. They don't like your ideas. They don't want to hear them. And they don't want you around. Persecution is when people want to erase you. They don't acknowledge you, and it's specifically because you belong to Jesus, and they want you gone. So to get rid of you, they exert pressure or pain, usually in the form of mockery, crude and intense insult, vileness toward you, and the purpose is because they don't like you, and they don't want you around. That's persecution. But it's really not you they're mad at. It's the person you serve, the king we just sang about. People really don't like Jesus. I was thinking through this, and I, you know, I was wondering, why do people hate Jesus? Because they really hated him. I mean, they really hated him. And I don't understand why. Jesus was an amazing guy. Like, he healed people who were blind. A leper came up to him that was ostracized. He healed the leper so he could come back into society. Children would just listen to him. He went to a funeral service where a boy died and the widow, the mom, who was a widow and also lost her son. He went to the funeral service, touched the guy in the coffin, and the boy jumped out of the coffin. Well, Jesus is a pretty good guy. Why did they hate him? Why did people hate Daniel? Daniel is an amazing guy, and they threw him in the lion's den. Why did people hate Paul? Paul was stoned, imprisoned, mocked, not listened to. So the question is, why do people hate Jesus? And even the next step, according to this, those who are associated with Jesus shouldn't be surprised if it happens to you. Why would they hate us? We're nice. We're nice. I was thinking through this, and if you look in verse 10, he gives a little bit of a clue. And if you go with this clue, I think I was going to talk about these first two things, and I, I was really wrestling with this, and I realize it's deeper than these first two things. I think these first two things have a, what I'd say, a small amount of truth, but the third thing I'm going to talk about is the real reason why they're going to hate us. One reason they might hate us is because of righteousness' sake or right living. Righteousness is living the right way, doing the right thing. I call it curve busting in a, on a spiritual level. Have you ever gone to class and you had that kid in class that always got an A, and because he always got an A, he ruined your grade? That's a curve buster. For instance, I took advanced algebra. I remember my sophomore year. I, I don't know why I was in the class. I hated it. And so did everybody else except for one guy. His name's Joe Rapetta. And Joe Rapetta had a pocket protector with five different color pens, a protractor, a giant Texas instrument. Steve, remember those big, giant instruments back then? And they would, they'd have like a tape that rolled out. Steve Buckner had one, I guarantee you. <laughs> and, and Joe Rapetta could, like he could do pi, I think up to the 30th, you know, degree. 3.14159. You'd say usually just 3.14159265589. And he always got an A plus in algebra. And then we'd get our test back, and 
we'd all get D's and C's because he broke the curse. Some people, I think, saw Jesus like that as the perfect holy man and their holiness, his holiness, revealed their unrighteousness. And maybe that's some of the reason we get persecuted too because people view us as holy rollers. But I'm not too sure. I don't think that's necessarily true. Maybe the second reason there's persecution for righteousness' sake, because righteousness is also doing right. And maybe don't, people don't, they're lazy when it comes to spirituality. There's a verse, I think it's one of the scariest verses in the Bible, for this reason. Because it's, a, it's like Jesus is bewildered. It's Luke 6.46, and he says this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Wow. But it sounds, you know, it's as if Jesus wants me to do something and kind of like a teenager on a couch, I don't want to do it, so I push back. But would it cause you to hate him, to kill him? I don't think so. I think the reason they hated Jesus was for a far more mysterious and deeper reason. And if you look at verse 9, verse 9 will give you a hint, and then verse 11 will elaborate on verse 10, and it will re reveal what it is. So look at verse 9. Blessed are those who are peacemakers, or the peacemakers, for they shall be called, what? Sons, which includes daughters and sons, children of God. So by the time you get to verse 9 in the Beatitudes, we are now God's family. We're in his family. Now go to verse 11. It talks about, it's elaborating on verse 10, which is being persecuted for righteousness. Specifically, what does that mean? Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. The NIV says, because of me. Go to Luke chapter 6. It's the mirroring passage of what we just read. And Jesus gets even a little bit more detailed about it. But if you notice, it's in regards to being associated or belonging to Jesus. Look what it says. Luke 6, 46. Not 46, 21 and 22. You can read Luke 6, 46. That's that tough verse again. But 21 and 22. And walk through it real slowly. Blessed are you when people, this is verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, you're not, you're not wanted at the party. We don't want you to come to the dance club with us. We don't want you to come to this Get together, because, you know, you're that wet blank. We don't want you around. When they exclude you and revile you, that's mockery, making fun of you, and spurn your name as evil. What's interesting about that, if, if uh, persecution is because you're doing too much good, they're spurning your name because you're evil. So there's something deeper there. Oh, they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. You belong to the Son of Man. Verse 23, rejoice in that day. 
Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Look at verse 26. This is the dark side of it. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Wait, aren't we supposed to be nice? Aren't we supposed to make sure everybody likes us Christians? Because if they don't like me as a Christian, it might give a bad word for Jesus. Well, look what he says. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Huh. So maybe we shouldn't expect to be liked by everybody. So I believe, and this is my argument I'm going to make, and then I'm going to show you some verses, why I think this is true, and then we're going to bring some implications out of it. Because the implications are heavy. I personally believe there is like a, Trevor put it like this, I was talking to him about it, there is a family feud going on. One family will naturally hate the other family. And you'll see who those families are. And it's deeper. So here's the verses I want us to look at. John 8 is where I want us to begin in verses 42 to 44. And truthfully, I want you to digest this, and for some of you, you won't like it. And again, these are not my words. These are the words of Jesus. And I don't know, there's this idea that people think Jesus doesn't say difficult things. But boy, this is tough. John 8. Starting in verse 42. John 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, he's talking to the Pharisees, religious leaders, and everybody, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So point one is when God is your father, you will love Jesus. If God is your father, you will love Jesus. Because Jesus is your older brother. You'll just love him. I had a weird older brother, but for some reason I loved him. Like crazy. And Jesus is not weird. He's amazing. I once heard it like this. Hey, let's say, imagine you were deaf and you were watching people dance. You would think them very strange. You would, under, you would not understand what they were doing if you were deaf. I think it's exactly like that for people who are not part of God's family as they watch people who are part of God's family. They don't understand why they do the things they do. And they don't understand why they love Jesus that much. Verse 43 and 44 says this, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of the Father, your Father, the devil. Those who ignore Jesus belong to the devil. That's hard. But did you know that Satan is both attractive and persuasive? He's both attractive and persuasive. And he's, you know what he's really good at? Blaming God for why he got kicked out of heaven. A lot of people are really good at blaming God for why they are not part of his family. Very interesting. And they're very persuasive and deceptive. 
Now I want you to go to 15. John 15. This is when it gets even a little bit deeper. And more mysterious. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So the verse, the third point is, belonging to Jesus is what inspires the hate. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. It's association with Jesus. Verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is a tough one. This might be the toughest one of all. And the one is, belonging is a result of God's choosing. Yes, I choose God, but he does choose me. Does God have the right to choose? Huh. Does God have the right to make you the way you look? I didn't ask to have this big nose, but he did it to me. Do I get mad at him? Because it's funny how we don't necessarily even argue. We, assume, we accept that he made me the way I am, but we're not accepting that stuff that much anymore. He doesn't have the right to even tell me what gender I am anymore. He doesn't have that right. He doesn't have the right to tell anybody if they're saved or not. He doesn't have that right. Why not? He says something about choosing. Fifth one is those who don't belong hate Jesus' name. Look at verse 21. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. Three summation points of this. Number one, hate is not about people who hate your purity or your goodness. They hate the family that you belong to. Number two, those who are not in Jesus' family belong to Satan and are mercy to the world's flow. That's really hard to swallow for people. There's this assumption that people are born into the world free. Nope. Nobody's ever free. Nobody's ever free. So if I think I'm freely living outside of God's will, who do you think I am a slave to? There's no such thing as freedom. It's an illusion. Third point. God has the right to choose his own. And yet there is something inside of us where we want to tell God who he should choose. I'll give you an illustration. Here's a guy um, that often talks to me. A long time ago he once asked me, he says, do you know that some non-Christians live better lives than Christians? Do you know that? Yes, I do. I do. It happens a lot, actually. But this is not about competition. It is about belonging. Christianity isn't about competing in goodness. It's about being a child. I'll give you an illustration. You guys all understand this. Let's say your son's on a sports team. Let's say they're really bad, and they never get to play. You do not go to the sports game necessarily to watch the best athletes. Sometimes, I mean, you want the team to win, but you don't say, you know, my son's sitting on a bench. I'm going to get rid of him, and I'm going to adopt that kid who's always making a layup. 
You know what happens? Your kid comes home and goes, Dad, we won. How'd you think I did on the layups before the game? You did great. Best layups I've ever seen. Because you love your kid. You can't stop loving your kid. And you know what? Sometimes your kid is going to do the dumbest things in the world, but you love your kid. So it's not a competition. The number one argument goes like this. You know why I don't believe in Jesus? You know why I don't join the church? Because all those hypocrites out there. So here's what you can say. So if somebody, so what you're saying, if you could find one Christian that lived this life that was amazing, perfect, was good to everybody, compassionate, gave everything for them, you'd believe in them? Oh, yeah. No, they killed them on a cross, and you still don't believe. Because the truth is, we don't believe in Jesus because I'm good. I believe in Jesus because I need a Savior. And then the second point happens. When I become his son, I want to please my dad. But I'm not pleasing my dad to compete with other people in the family. I've got four sisters, I told you last week, and a brother. I never once said, Gina, I'm going to prove to you dad loves me more than you. Let me prove it to you. My dad loves my sisters different than he loves me, but he loves us equally. But I want to please my dad. I think inside of everybody, you want to please your dad. Some of you have tried and tried and tried to please your dad, but he's, he's a rotten man. And so you have this bitterness towards him. But deep down inside, you just wish he would say, I'm proud of you. But let me tell you something. You have a perfect father who is proud of you. If you're in Christ, he said, behold, this is my son, this is my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. You need to believe that. So because of your, you're his kid, people are going to want to persecute you and they're going to want to try to get you to be disloyal to your father. I'll show you. It happened to Moses. I also think sometimes God allows that persecution to show that you're his child. Let me show how Moses modeled it. I call it Moses as a model, what it looks like to be a believer. Go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. It's right after James, actually right before James, after General Electric Power Company. Remember that last week? You're learning. I'm here to teach you about the Bible. So Hebrews 11, so this is called the Hall of Faith, not the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Faith. All these great saints of the Old Testament who live lives of faith. And there's a summary at the end of chapter 11 about their lives, but one of these saints is Moses. Look at verse 24 to 28. I'm going to read it and then give you points how this should resemble those who also are part of the faith. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So Pharaoh's daughter, if you remember, found him floating down the Nile River, adopted him, raised him up as a king, and then he realized he was Jewish. And the Jews were the slaves. And he said, you know what? I could either live the life of a king or I could accept my heritage and be a Jew and be a slave. You know what? I don't want to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter anymore. So the first thing you could say is, 
Moses is a model of identity. He refused to be known as a different group than being God's child. There's always a competitive group for identity. For instance, there's always this idea, am I going to be Am I going to be known more for the politics I believe in or the person I follow? I'm not saying having a political opinion is wrong. In fact, I think there's philosophical consequences of which political side you take. So I think it's okay to argue. But are you more, would you rather be known as the side you argue for or following a person? Jesus. So even if your side doesn't win, I trust you. Do you like to be known for a school you go to or a church you attend? Would you rather be known for the Comic-Con character you like or Christ? Because I'm telling you, I'm not, not saying being a Comic-Con lover is wrong. But if that's who you see yourself as. I'm, I dress up every year as Superman and I try to go as many as I can as Superman. That's fine. That's fine. But do you do it in lieu of Christ? I know a lot of people just go to Comic-Con and never go to church the rest of their life because they like being Superman. Do you identify more as a group by sexual proclivities or gender issues than you do Christ? I am not talking about tendencies. I'm not it's we all have tendencies in different ways where we're broken. I'm not talking about that. But I am talking, are you more proud of being a certain gender than you are a Christian? It's weird how some people are. Moses would rather be known as God's. That's his primary identity. Moses also is a model of loyalty. Look at verse 25. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the feeding pleasures of sin. So the competition is, which one do I choose? Do I choose obedience or do I choose pleasure? Because often, pleasure will be competing with obedience. A lot. There's an assumption that it won't. Yes, it will. Especially when you're in the back seat of a car. Who wins? Moses was a model of sharing. Look what it says in verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he's looking for the reward. So he was sharing in reproach, in shame. And he's also going to be sharing in reward. When you're part of the family, you get to share in both. If you're ever part of your family, let's say you go to a vacation spot, not everybody gets to go to the vacation spot with you. You get to go with your dad because he's bringing you. You share into the family jewels. Same thing. Moses is a model of behaving. Look at verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Oh, his action caused the king to be angry. Sometimes your actions are going to cause those you once hung out with or loved or clicker that you have to be angry. I had a friend, and I've mentioned this a number of times, his name's Vinny. 
I'd go to spring break with Vinny for three summers in a row. Vinny called me up and said, hey man, we're going to go to Myrtle Beach again, you want to go? I said, Vinny, I can't. Number of reasons, I'm going to Moody Bible Institute, um, and I just can't go down there anymore. I can't go there to spring break. He goes, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, man? You used to be so much fun. Okay, great. I haven't talked to Vinny since. What do you laugh at? What do you celebrate? Who do you join in with? Those three questions really show where your loyalty lies. Who you belong to. So when persecution comes, what do we do? Let's go back to Matthew. Do we pout? Do we say, woe is me? And don't be surprised. If it happened to Jesus, it will happen to you. Remember, a, a true Christian is more than just being nice. So what should we do when persecution comes? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you could say this, instead of retaliation, getting back at somebody, rejoice. That's your graduation diploma. Hey, I made it. I made it. They trashed my name. I must be doing something right. Second thing, don't be sad. Be glad. Nobody likes me. Nobody likes me. Does Jesus? Yeah, he does. Man, that's worth everything, isn't it? And then the third thing is I'd say if you roll it all into one, don't give in to pressure because the point of pressure is to get you to do what you don't want to do. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, those who wish to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. Persecution's intention is to stop you from living godly. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. Because when you live godly, you glorify your Father. So you have graduated when that happens to you, so rejoice, be glad. And here's your reward. Your reward in heaven is great, it's better than you can ever imagine, and you join an elite group of people who've gone before you, the prophets. I want you to go back to Hebrews, we're going to close in these two verses. Hebrews is before James, Hebrews 11, the end of the hall of faith. Take a look at Verses 37 to 40, and then also 15 to 16. 37 to 40. Talking about those who were persecuted for having faith. Verse 37, they were stoned. People threw rocks at them in the head. They were sawn in two. Some people think this is talking about the prophet Isaiah because he prophesied some pretty hard things. They took a saw and cut him in half. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Just a question, have you ever had it this bad? Verse 39, and all of these, though commended through their faith, 
did not receive what was promised. They didn't get everything on earth. But they do get verse 40. Since God provided something better, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So we get to join with them in what is waiting for us in heaven. What is waiting for us in heaven? I think it's 15 and 16. To me, to me, this, these two verses motivate me more than anything in my Christian walk. And you'll understand why in a second. You might have heard me say it, but I'll say it a hundred times. Verse 16 is an incredible verse. But look at verse 15 and 16. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, meaning if they had only had their hands, claws, sunk into this earth to get all of it out. This is what life's living. If that's what they're doing, ah, they would have had an opportunity to return. They could go back to it. But, verse 16, as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. That's where everything's going to make, <laughs> make all my dreams come true. Therefore, because they desire this heavenly city, and here it is, read it slow, God is not ashamed to be called your God. I think that means God is watching you on earth, and when you stand for his name, he says to the angels, come here, come here. That's my boy. I told Missy in the first service, she does not like to get up here and sing. I heard her say it. I'm not, I don't like to do this. She comes up here even though it's not easy getting here at 7 in the morning. <laughs> and I think when she gets up here, God says, hey, you guys, that's my daughter. What is God going to say about you? If I could have the... Uh, group worship team lead one more song. I want to ask you a question, and it's around this idea of more. I often wonder, what is the sign I've given a good sermon? And early in my career, I really thought it was attaboys. You know, the, you're the best, way to go. Oh, that made me laugh. And I realized it's not that. I was reading Revelation, and Revelation says, in the end of the world, when people go to heaven, those who are wicked are going to go on doing more wicked things. Those who are good are going to go on and do more good things. And I realize good preaching causes those who are part of the devil's family to hate what you just said. It's going to make them mad. Those who are part of Christ's family, if what you have said is really scriptural, they will want more. They will want to be more of that. And they will say, wow. Not even necessarily that was good. Ooh, I needed that. 